Jank. Man lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality, but there is, unseen by most, an underworld, a place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. George A. Romero, Tales from the Dark Side TV Intro, 1983 Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to the Omega Phi Podcast. I am your host, Michael MacGyver. For you new listeners, I spell Michael, capital M, apostrophe, capital Y, C-E-L-L. But that's immaterial. Michael MacGyver is not my real name. It's just a compound cultural cognomen. I am primarily of descent, not from an arbitrary animal bloodline but from the pinnacle of socio-cultural constructs, 1980s prime-time television. The alias reflects my heritage, but pseudonymity is its primary use. Privacy is a dwindling resource in these dangerous times. I have to make it harder for future grievance culture zealots to link me to my inevitably problematic blasphemies. As we are all aware, things said without hate, even ten years ago, are today grounds for total social death sentences. Regarding that, I'd like to thank you for your deluge of feedback and offer this mea culpa. I apologize to anyone I've hurt recently, and I accept full responsibility for any harm I have caused. I've deleted the offensive posts in the discussion thread for last week's episode. I acknowledge my memes as having been careless and insensitive. I would ask that you please stop sharing images of those posts to cease the spread of the psychic pain I've inflicted. I'm not attempting to deflect with that statement. I only hope that my admission of guilt can serve as an example, so we all might learn from this teachable moment. I am 110% at fault. It was a moral failure on my part. I should have considered how big a role anime plays in most of your lives. Once again, you have my deepest, most sincerest apologies. I do not wish to make anyone sad, particularly those who I seek to empower and enlighten. The so-called news is depressing enough, though I suppose that's not exactly a new development. We've been living in a post-truth era for longer than there's been a name for it. People have almost always spoken from their biases. The nature of perception makes that unavoidable. The depressing part is these days they speak to those personal truths without honor, without even knowing what honor is. I used to think Captain Jean-Luc Picard made a tactical error by joining Tuesday Night Poker with the other senior crew of the Starship Enterprise 
NCC-1701-D. See TNG, Season 7, Episodes 25 and 26. All good things. My first impression was Picard would not have a chance against the other players. Data was an android with perfect recall and the ability to compute probabilities. LaForge, a cyborg who could see through cards. Troy, a telepath. Riker, a teacher of poker masterclasses with a smugness level over 9,000. And Crusher had recently psychologically dominated Jean-Luc by leading him on for years, then friend-zoning after his first romantic advance. See TNG, Season 7, Episode 8, Attached. On multiple levels, he was at a disadvantage. However, when I considered Worf also had a seat at the table, my perspective changed. Worf, an adherent to the Klingon honor culture. Worf, son of Moog, balanced that broken game on the strength of his honor. And, I suppose, the fear of table flipping. But mostly, it was honor. And so I ask myself, what is honor? I mean, beyond a dictionary definition, what is the experience of honor? Today's episode is an attempt to delve into what honor means to me. The following diegesis will not make much sense except to those educated in the way, but for those as yet uninitiated, may still serve as a good spot to dive in. As a statistically significant amount of adventures begin, it was Friday evening. Emmanuel and I waded eastward into the city. The setting sun bathed the purple-scraped sky in a magical golden-hour glare. We squinted as reflections burned our retinas, and the late November wind chilled our faces. Emmanuel and I are kindred spirits, together probing the depths of experience. I care a great deal for her. She showed talent, so I took her on as my protégé to begin her instruction in the way. Mastering memory and mind-reading, stoicism and statistics, the weirding of probabilities, the crafting of destiny. On this fateful Friday, we were prepared for battle. We cut northeast through Dogshit Park, a loud-mouthed, off-leashed labradoodle fixated on an out-of-reach albino squirrel, tauntingly flicking its tail atop the lowest limb of a gnarled bitternut hickory. Besides being a city squirrel and an albino, it was likely defective in other ways. There was already snow on the ground. If it had any sense at all, it would have been hibernating a week ago. We traversed Dogshit Park's snow-covered land. Its distinctive scent had been suppressed, but the hot steam rising from the sewer-lined streets suggested a similar sort of stink. Vehicles slopped slush, inching incrementally, almost as slowly as our feet. Trolleys clanged by, jam-packed with bundled, sweating, angry meat. As one of the weighty, electric-powered disease vectors kachunked by us, I glanced at the anguished faces of the human sardines peering out from foggy, frosted windows. Heavy hell on light rail. Despite the cold wind, I celebrated my strategy of traveling by foot. Walking and talking, our conversation drifted to chemical horror stories. I regaled M with the one about a gas that animated the dead. She distilled for me 
a tale about an addictive liquid that came in a little glass vial. She had a taste for the macabre, but also a green streak. Once her potential was realized, she would surely chart a course for herself between the arts of necromancy and the forces of nature. Lively dark rainbows and deathly sun showers. M was a rarity, a balanced, goth-hippie hybrid. She was tall, almost my height, twice as loud. Early in our friendship, she had informed me she was a lesbian, which was fine with me because she wasn't getting any of this jelly. No siree. I had long since distanced myself from distractions of the flesh. Frequent listeners know my interests lay in a less physical realm. Still, M being a lesbian was a bonus modifier to our friendship. Not being distracted by my intensely masculine appeal would help her focus on her training. Upon learning of her orientation, I remarked, Goth? Hippie? Lesbian? What's it like living the life of a Wiccan stereotype? We arrived early to the temple. As we ascended the staircase to the arena, the nasal roar of battle mages rose. In the upper air, the thick, hot scent of thought sweat mingled with the smell of books. Tomes stacked on every wall, ceiling high. A maze of manga and a myriad of supplemental material. We crossed the threshold into the arena. Four times long as wide, the vast space stretched back hundreds of feet, its floor filled with tables, sacred altars with one commandment. Thou shalt not drink from open containers. MGMT. The master of ceremonies greeted us, adding our names to the list of combatants. Smiling, M asked, How many lambs to the slaughter this eve, good sir? The slovenly, neck-bearded man deadpanned his repartee. Including the two of you? He paused with comedic timing, then continued, So far we've got twenty-seven. He smiled as he collected our registration fees, saying, The tournament will soon begin. Bureaucratic business attended to, we ventured deeper into the arena to mix with the other contestants. A multicultural crowd united not by tribe, title, or arbitrary identity trait, but bonded by the beauty of art, logic, math, and a shared love for competition. Regardless if they were explicitly instructed in the way, each player embodied aspects of its essence. We were drawn to a sizable crowd coalescing around a competitive, constructive format exhibition. Libraries were double-sleeved and dragon-shielded for protection. The battlefield was cluttered with permanents, tokens, artifacts, enchantments, and lands. Some of the cards, priceless. We looked down upon what appeared to be two control mages facing off. One old, one young. Both lost in concentration, juggling the increasing complexity of their decision trees and probability matrices. The old bald one collected sweat from his brow with the back of his left hand. He wiped it dry, up, then down the breast of his corduroy vest. Pass the turn, he said, leaving all of his resources untapped. The younger player began his turn, announcing, 
Untap. Upkeep. Draw. Fresh face focused. His eyes enumerated his available resources. He compulsively adjusted the order of the cards he held in his hand. I knew this behavior. Augmented a bit by Adderall or Asperger's, perhaps both. He was definitely running through permutations, trying to decide if this game was his to win or his to lose. The kid came to a decision. He tapped his mana and meekly announced an enchantment spell, laying the card in the middle of the battlefield. I'll allow it, said Baldy. The kid's enchantment resolved into permanence, boosting the stats of his army. Move to combat phase, he said, adding, Response? Baldy shook his head in the negative, then casually reordered the four remaining cards in his hand, suggesting he had at least one line of play, or was bluffing and had nothing. Declare attackers, said the kid, turning a cluster of seven soldier tokens sideways. With the additional power granted by the anthem effect of the enchantment he had cast, he was representing lethal damage. Baldy grinned, drawing six mana from his lands. He cast an instant spell, punctuating each word of its devastatingly simple effect. End the turn. Several onlookers gasped, comprehending if this spell resolved, the kid's alpha strike would be cancelled and he would be dead to Baldi's next titan attack. The kid coolly drew mana from his lands, produced a card from his hand, and responded, Mana leak! Baldi scoffed, smirking with one side of his mouth. He tapped three more mana, attempting an imitation of Sean Connery from Highlander, or perhaps Zardoz. He said, I'll pay your price. The kid tapped two more mana from his islands, produced another card from his hand, this time saying, Counterspell. Baldi responded by tapping two islands of his own, tossed a card atop the growing stack, and said, Leak your counter. Having only two mana left, the kid could not plug the leak. But he tapped his remaining islands, produced another counterspell card, and said, Counter your leak. Baldi frowned, pursed his lips, and stroked his goatee. He set his remaining two cards, face down on the table, and glanced at the orientation of his D20. The platonic icosahedron representing his life total read 12. Holding his breath, he reviewed the battlefield, counting the incoming attackers. One could be blocked with his titan, but the six that went unblocked would each deal two damage. He was dead on board. Not just lethal. Exaxes. The kid leaned back in his chair, confidence buoyed. I had witnessed such scenes play out many times. The amalgam of lessons absorbed through thousands of past games forecast the precipitation of drama. I leaned toward M, then whispered into her ear, Pay close attention to this, my apprentice. The kid's grin betrayed his feeling of relief. Baldi responded, raising an eyebrow, toying with him. Mining salt. Drawing his last two blue mana, Baldy locked eyes with the kid, then blindly flipped over the topmost card of his hand, capping the stack. He said, Counter your counter. There would be no answering this. The kid was tapped out. In frustration, 
he tossed his remaining three uncastable cards onto the battlefield. Conceding the game, he scooped. Shit! The crowd cheered with oohs, ahs, laughter, and applause. Baldi unbuttoned his vest, putting his hands on his belly, jovially whooping like a sadistic Buddha. Jeez, said the kid. He smiled, the humor of his loss hitting him, shaking his head from side to side, defeated but amused. Baldi reeled in his laughter, took his right hand off his belly, and held it out over the battlefield, saying, Good game! Good game, returned the kid, shaking Baldi's hand. Three solid pumps. You slow-rolling son of a bitch! The crowd dispersed. I spotted Leonard Skeltel at the trading tables. The smile on his face indicated he was conducting business. He was wearing his Vegeta, Dragon Ball Z Hawaiian shirt. When I first met him, he was an independently wealthy cryptocurrency baron. He diversified at peak into real estate and is now an Airbnb slumlord. Story in OPP, episode 181, Two-Headed Giant Special. Lenny is one of the best traders I've ever known. The key to his trading prowess is his question, Are you happy with this trade? He does as much as possible to get a completely free of duress affirmative answer, always coming out on top by his own metrics, but also striving to make sure his trade partners are similarly satisfied. Lenny recognizes that games of trade are not zero-sum value propositions. He firmly believes that all parties to a trade can and should benefit. I made eye contact with Lenny from across the trade table. He nodded a silent hello and continued his business conversation. His trade partner wore a large backpack to haul his wares. From behind him, I could not see his face to gauge his interest in the transaction. Based on Lenny's engagement and the substantial card piles on the table between them, I concluded this was a high-value exchange. Looking over his shoulder, I could see Lenny's trade partner lackadaisically perusing the famed Skeletal jank binder. To sweeten a deal, Lenny would offer it, saying, Take any five cards from here. All the cards bound within were usually jank, except for one in the center of the first page. Lenny would strategically place a chase rare at that most prominent of spots. Being far more valuable than the rest, it would almost always be picked. Adding any other four cards, jank or not, would tend to make people feel like they were getting a good deal. Lenny used more than a few psychological tricks like that. He had the ability to be a shark, but he took a principled stance and didn't gain value from unbalanced trades. He profited on the strength of his investments. Lenny is masterful at identifying which cards have the highest potential. For most players, complexity is too high to predict what cards will define the top-tier deck, let alone which will beat the best. Len's picks were so often correct they warped the local metagame. He had stopped making his want list public because local speculators were using it to pump up prices ahead of demand. Watching Lenny effortlessly complete a massive trade, I wondered if treating his want list as a dangerous secret was yet another one of his value-altering psychological tricks. After all, the best way to spread information is to infuse a forbidden quality 
to attract curious minds. I suppose it didn't matter if he was manipulating us. Everyone was thankful to make a deal with Mr. Skeltal. They shook hands, finalizing their trade. Lenny's trade partner gently slid a stunningly beautiful gold card into a pink sleeve. He proudly inserted it as the centerpiece on page two of his binder. Its text was too far away to be legible, but I recognized the art of the multicolored Mythic Rare. It was one of my favorite new cards. A solid acquisition. I already had a playset. Cards of Mythic Rarity were a modern addition to the game. Before their introduction, the only three acknowledged production levels were Rare, Uncommon, and Common, excluding foils and promos, of course. Those three standard rarity levels varied depending on set size, print run, reprints, etc., but were present in consistent ratios in every booster. Combined with the gold standard of the reserved list, this consistency anchored the trade value distribution to the player base. Mythics, however, only appearing in about one out of every six packs, ballooned the sale of boosters and led to depression of prices at the lower rarity levels. They alleviated stagnation, but the economic divide of the player base was deepened. Bulk commons became almost worthless, while chase mythics became extremely expensive. The community pushed back against the artificial inflation. Rarity-restricted casual constructed formats emerged and thrived, further increasing the size of the player base. So despite its downsides, corporate greed and mismanagement ended up perpetuating the way by making it scale economically. A paunchy, ginger-haired man with a bowl cut waved at us. His Friendship is Magic t-shirt was at least a size too small. Sashang toward us, he said, Emmanuel! Windy, how the heck are you? greeted Em, matching his cheer. I'm super, how you been? Grim, dark, yet optimistic, she accurately appraised herself, then asked, What you been up to? Oh my, like, uh, so many things. He put his hand on his head as if trying to extract more details, then went on. Nothing comes to mind, but I'm keeping busy. Windy and M had met in college. After catching up for a few minutes, Windy said, Let me introduce you to Helga. I had only marginal awareness of Helga Vinjakar. I knew enough to know I had no interest in knowing more. She had a prickly personality. I couldn't decide if she was nearer to being a prison shot caller or the lord of an incel harem. Not that I think ill of incels. I use the term descriptively, not pejoratively. I understand their plight, to be awkward or lacking in aesthetics. Having intangible qualities that make people not want to be around them, let alone touch them. The recurring pain of being rejected by a society that refuses to look below the surface. Discrimination of that sort is the most pervasive form of prejudice. Shunned before being known. It's cruel. Incels, however, embrace this cruelty and their own sadness by focusing on sex, while their handicap lay far before that level of a relationship. An incel's biggest problem isn't that which they see as contributing to their status as an incel. It's their resignation in self-identifying as such. 
Incels next level themselves into being forever alone by way of their attitude. Although also having a bad attitude, Helga herself was probably not an incel. Celibacy is almost always voluntary for females. Her bosom was just too substantial for her caustic personality to hinder her entirely. Perhaps in avoidance of my disgust reaction, I only imagined the celibacy of her serviles. I terminated the intrusive thought and shuddered. It was clear to me that Windy had been sent as Helga's emissary. Windy guided us to a table at the back of the arena, where the subtle sounds of dungeon synth saturated. The tabletop was cluttered with miniatures. Helga sat surrounded by her boys. She opted to forego a greeting. Fixating her gaze on M, she asked, How long have you been a player? As I suspected, Helga was trying to see if M was legit. Sizing up a potential competitor on some frivolous feminine territorial level performing a shit test, like some geek, she-beast mini-boss. Are you a Spike, a Timmy, or perhaps a Johnny? Timmy, Timmy, Johnny, Jenny, not a fan of labels. None of the above, or all. Take your pick, offered M. It was a good riposte. Better than I could have come up with. I overflowed with pride. Helga directed zero attention toward me. Cold gray eyes, poker-faced and tapping her fingers on the table. She continued to size up M. What's your star sign? More superficial scuttlebutt. Awaiting a reply to their master's query, Helga's harem surrounded her suspended in a kinetic silence, as though she were the focal point of a tableau. They say I'm a Leo, answered M, splashing the question back. And you? I'm Scorpio. Stingy, remarked M. Changing the subject, she added, Your shirt is totally sweet. Helga's poker face dissolved. Her black painted lips parted, revealing a smile. With an annoyingly enthusiastic inflection, she said, Thank you. Her Sisters of Mercy t-shirt was custom tapered. On her left hand, she wore gaudy rings on every finger. Several bracelets, necklaces, and numerous other pieces of flair accented her outfit. She dyed her hair black and layered her eyeshadow dark purple, prickly, territorial, and likely vain. An announcement booming over the PA system flooded out their low-value verbal exchange. Table seatings are posted. Drafting will begin in five minutes. Please find and take your places presently. Em and I were assigned to different tables. Three unopened packs of fifteen cards were stacked in front of each drafter in their pods of eight. As per rules, silence is to be maintained. Direct communication is not permitted during the draft. Each competitor was in a state of quiet contemplation, but not just because it was a rule. Drafting is an important level on which we play. Compared to constructive formats, drafting is more random which does not mean it is less skill-based. Quite the opposite. Limited formats are more skill-intensive and require greater agility of mind. Persistent archetypes exist based on core mechanic interactions, but their effectiveness changes with the impermanent environment. Scissors don't always beat paper. Rock isn't always solid. 
a draft format is a quickly evolving entity. A bell rang, signaling the start of drafting. We cracked our boosters. My hands expertly extracted the precious cardboard shards out of plasticized foil packaging. An anticipatory wave rushed over me as though effects from future events were rippling backward through time. My heart pumped excitedly, and an alert calm surged the main line to my core. The smell of the cardstock hit my nostrils and resurfaced a memory of my first time all those years ago. The way had summoned me, lunch hour after math class, in the halls of high school. While the cool kids opted to smoke cigarettes in the vacant lot adjacent the school grounds, we played. We the few. We the brave. For that story, OPP, episodes 71 to 73, The Riddle of Cardboard. I had been a player for almost a quarter century before I recognized the higher dimensional order. I felt ashamed I had not noticed sooner, but I quickly made peace with my past. Within this new paradigm, life itself is a series of games. In some, you get bad beats. In others, you get blessed. Top-decking like luck is one of your skills. A state of flow, becoming one with the moment, is required to master playing on multiple levels linked through time by a multifaceted metagame, fluctuating like cosmic strings. Form constantly shifting. Every component gradually swapped out and replaced anew. A fifth-dimensional ship of Theseus. By certain definitions, the game is even more alive than its players. This deceptively simple game obeys commands, but it also gives them. Anyone can play, but to parlay into the way one must obey. I know that sounds like hyperbolic nonsense. I'm sure by now some of you regular listeners might suspect what I am describing to be a symptom of my recent head injury. OPP, Episode 137, Oblong Data Indeed, brain damage may be a contributing causal stream. However, I have only gained insight. I speak in near-religious abstract, because no greater metaphors exist in language for me to convey the concept. There is no single mind or entity commanding the will of the way. Its intentionality is visible only to those of us open to really looking not for a meta-meme made manifest, but the opposite, a nascent ethic on the verge of autopoetic self-birth. Speculative as it is, I strongly believe what I am describing to be real. But I digress. I fanned the fresh fifteen cards in my hand. Instinctively I noted the color distribution, then I scanned for bombs, removal, evasion, aggression, value outside the draft in excess of my gains from my probable placement in the competition. Maximizing expected value is the route to going infinite, to burn as brightly and for as long as odds allow. My basic drafting strategy has always been cooperative. For this block, I had contextually memorized all 458 cards, their names, 
mana cost, type line, text box, art, artist, flavor text, collector number, rarity, and errata. I knew the pick orders and the combos, but I also knew I was not alone with that knowledge. Other players likely had insight, skill level, or experience exceeding even my own. I took all this into consideration and made subtle adjustments to my priorities. And just like that, the first round of drafting was complete. The Master of Ceremonies granted a thirty-second break between packs. I took stock of my picks, noting cards in all five colors. No archetype was yet speaking to me. In the distance, I spotted the back of M's head. I could tell she was smiling. Her aura radiated positive energy, which indicated to me she had drafted a bomb or two. I refocused myself, cracked pack two, removed the token, picked a card, and then passed to my right. My selections faced down in a single pile in front of me. I attempted to compose my deck mentally. The cards passing through my hands blurred together in a prismatic whirl. Their 2D sheen sang to me holographically. The second pack completed, then the third went around the table. The trickle of cards into my pool ceased and deck construction began. I arranged my picks by the curve of their casting cost and poured over my options. Hearing the colors, a current of card song stirred up past drafts. My brain set itself to work, differencing datasets. The moist computer filtered and distilled a shapeless perspective for my mind. Like most things that exist, I can identify its components. I can identify the rules under which it operates. But there are more than just those two levels of analysis. The thing itself relates to things not directly linked to its constituents or behavioral reality. Human phenomena are mere disturbances on the surface of our reflecting pool reality. The source of those disturbances extends into a realm unimaginable. Something that is beyond language. Something that withdraws from any attempt at a complete analysis. The ways gestalt is not grounded upon dichotomies of instinct, serendipity, signifier, signified, subject, object, component, function, field, particle, or any shallow spectrum of human thought. Again, I digress. From my 45 draft picks, I selected 23 for the main deck. The rest didn't make the cut due to being off-curve or color, or because they were too situational. I relegated these reserves to my sideboard. I opted to build a black-red deck, splashing blue. Compared to a two-color deck, it was not preferable, as there were trade-offs between diversity and synergy, power level and consistency. I hoped perhaps on that day, variance would favor me. M tapped me on the shoulder. Little help, bud? Certainly. Show me what you got. She had it down. There were no improvements I could suggest. For her deck's slightly high-cost curve, she had beautifully intuited the hypergeometric distribution, correctly matching 18 lands with 22 spells. Assuming she didn't get aggroed or flood within the first five turns and kept her play tight, 
she would be unsinkable. Very nice, I said, complimenting her elegant build. Eighteen mana isn't too much, she inquired, not confident in her instincts. Probabilistically optimal if you want to cast that six-drop bomb in a reasonable time frame. You did great. Thanks. What about you? Pull anything of note? Nothing broken. A decent amount of removal, mostly jank. But I can work with it. We sleeved up. M's were plain matte black. Mine, decorated with a vector graphic of a cartoon panda. First round pairings were announced. We bid each other good luck, then parted to find our seats. Awaiting my first opponent, I closed my eyes and focused on my breathing. The seriousness of the competition decreased the chatter in the room. If you listened closely, you could hear order emerging out of chaos. The soothing hiss of distant waves breaking, only distant because my thoughts pulled me away. I acknowledged each and dismissed them, but one kept tugging at me. The game had been simplified, streamlined, and made more accessible. That was good. But like every idea, every invention, anything at all of beauty or majesty, discovered or created by mankind, control was usurped from the people. Middlemen had inserted themselves, artlessly and without love. Seeking to profit parasitically, they diluted it. The corruption was gradual, generationally style-guided, superficially diversified and nerfed. Functionally refined but homogenized on unconscious aesthetic levels. It had become entirely too glossy, inoffensive and inert, a product like so many others. And yet deep within its cardboard and plastic prison, below the ink, suppressed beneath the infinite weight of the bottom line of a corporate consumer capitalist overlord, the way persisted. Indomitable. My first-round opponent introduced himself as Morton Shang. He was abnormally tall and scruffy for an Asian. His handshake was firm. Real friendly guy. I think he might have been drunk. We shuffled and presented each other our decks for final cut. Mort waved his cut and trustingly knocked on the top of my library, a custom of casual play. I opted to rifle-shuffle his seven times. Not because I had any reason to suspect he might be illegally stacking or weaving his deck, but because it's good practice to ensure proper randomization. It is ancillary shuffling also thwarts those who would cheat. I insisted he shuffle my deck too. In online simulations of the game, shuffling was automated by algorithmic pseudo-random number generation. That was an indisputable improvement over the cardboard version but something about its virtual incarnation was dry. Without the mutual absorption of small talk, smack talk, battle banter, bluffs, and tells, without the harmonious feedback loops between the mirror neurons of two brains attempting to recursively model each other to gain a competitive edge, without those things, the way could not be navigated. 
Additionally, if not for the social interaction of face-to-face matchups, I would probably be a deranged hermit. Now our first game was close, but I finished off the round rather quickly. 2-0 in the best of three. Our match went to me. I thanked Mort for the game. With time to spare, I went to watch M play. I had been watching their game for a few turns, when M's opponent made a critical play mistake. He immediately asked if he could undo it. This would not be permitted at a professional event. But this tournament was a Duelist Convocation International, sanctioned competitive event conducted using relaxed, regular rules enforcement level. Such determinations were left up to player consensus. I observed my mentee, wondering what her response would be. She waved her hand over the battlefield, motioning to allow it. Their game was made better for the both of them. And she still won. Takesies backsies was another advantage of playing face-to-face. My gaze drifted away from M and washed over the crowd. Out of the sea of faces, my eyes met Helga's. She was looking at me, observing me. What business did she have staring at me? I looked away, feigning a sudden attention-requiring task as subterfuge. I didn't have time for her disturbances. Holding my breath and counting to ten, I down-regulated activity in my amygdala. Worf's words of wisdom came to mind. Thinking about what you can't control only wastes energy and creates its own enemy. Early in Game 3, after one of M's removal spells resolved, She paused for an extended period, not to shilly-shally, but to think through a few lines of play. Her opponent asked her a simple yes-or-no question, to which the answer was obviously yes. M affirmed, then her opponent put his hand on his library and said, All done? It was a classic psych-out. Neuro-linguistic programming is widely recognized as pseudoscience, and thus game rules permitted his car-salesman-like persuasion tactic. He had tried to plant the suggestion she announced the end of her turn. It was a good try, but M was far too strong-minded for tricks like that. No, I think I'll enter my combat phase. She declared an attacker and swung for two points of unblocked damage, then paused again, this time only pretending to think deeply. Thirty seconds passed before she facetiously faked forgetting to end her turn, saying, Oh yeah, moops, you can go now. Epic Troll I walked away assured of her dominance. My opponent for round two was Matteo Crabone. Trilby tightly covering his eyebrows, presumably to lower the possibility of an unconscious micro-expression betraying him. I liked the cut of his jib. I found myself ahead, mid-game one, until he summoned a 7-6 hexproof beast, for which I had no answers. In three turns, I was trampled to death. Game two took slightly longer. Our play was intense, our matchup even. But ultimately, Kraboni was weak to my flying creatures. We sideboarded before our third game, 
replacing dead cards with speculatively more effective ones, then shuffled profusely and began our decisive battle. Crabone's sideboarding choices made Game 3 uncommonly interesting. He started by gumming up the ground game. He answered my flying creatures with the tightening coils of his removal spells. It wasn't until around turn 10 I understood his plan. Boy, oh boy, was I surprised. It was not a traditionally viable archetype. Most games are won through dealing damage. It's roughly three times as hard to win by depleting an opponent's deck. Low odds of this win condition be damned. He had the gall to go for it. I admire gall. He summoned a feeder from the fathoms and began exiling my spell library. On his next turn, I realized I was wrong. His milling of my library intensified, aided by his green mana ramp. I was reacting based on a false belief, accurate to 60-card constructed decks, but not 40-card limited ones. And, foolishly, I wasn't counting cards in hand or cards drawn. I mentally updated my math. There had been seven in hand at start, and I estimated 13 draws. Subtract from 40, leaving only 20 for him to mill away. Further, automatically reduced by one every turn. He had me on a ticking clock. My face must have flushed fear, or perhaps just understanding. Graboni smiled and said, Je sais que tu sais que je sais. I know that you know that I know. Graboni was a worthy opponent. I summoned a silent skimmer, and suddenly we were racing, attacking each other on different fronts. It was no longer a battle of skill or will. The outcome of our game had already been decided at the level of sideboarding. An infinitely complex vortex of causality converged on a single level, our shared game state. We were dancing deterministically, being moved by the universe, fluidly filtering random action through rigid rules. I attacked, he milled, his life lessened slightly slower than my deck depleted. We laughed together as my last card was exiled. My resources brought to naught. Craboni decked me. I cannot believe that word, he said. Ditto. I congratulated him on his incredible victory, autographed the match report, then thanked him for a thoroughly entertaining game. The ecstatic experience of the previous match had me reverberating. I felt myself floating at the fringe of a lucid dream, alert for out-of-order execution of reality's narrative, paradoxical dualities and causeless effects, upstream perceptions, opportunity knocking. Things unintuitive at the level of reality our base logic inhabits, unintuitive but not unknowable. For example, quantum non-locality and superposition. The collapse of the wave function is the point where our models of reality cross-fade. With effort, training, and devotion, we can grasp such alien concepts. 
our ability to conceive of other logics emerges from a superliminal space in our consciousness. Given adequate information and the right perspective, we can balance chaos and order. We can learn, create, and sail the seas of existence with meaning. The way encourages us to observe our own thoughts. It allows us to realize consciousness is not magical, but mechanical. Self-awareness is an off-labeled use of our ability to play the most dangerous game, to track prey and avoid becoming prey. Our capacity for metacognition results from the evolution of survival itself. The ability to experiment, to take chances freely and non-fatally fail, losing a game, a match, or a tournament, but living to play again and again and again and again and again, is perhaps the greatest factor in our evolution. Pushing outward the boundaries. With every loss or win, the motivation to play is refreshed. We learn to go on. How best to handle unfavorable odds. To persevere. To be better. To ascend. The way rewards us greatly. I'm undefeated so far, said M. Nice. I won my first match, lost my second, to Mill. No way. Really? That can work? Evidently, yes. There was a disturbance in her aura. M seemed distant. How's your deck playing? I asked. Every time I draw my six-drop bomb, I win. Forgot to attack once. Didn't matter, though. A few mistakes. Nothing fatal. Allowing yourself to get distracted? She tilted her head ever so slightly, precursor to a quip. You know what they say, if the bra fits. The third round began. Trevor cordially introduced himself. He was clean-cut, short hair, shirt, collared, bespectacled, his overall presentation plain and precise. He and I had not played before, but I suspected he would be formidable. His shuffling technique had finesse. The word champion was emblazoned on his playmat. Mats like his were awarded to players who made top eight at a pro tour qualifier. Anyone can get lucky and win a round or two at professional level competitive events, maybe even three. And the luck can go the other direction. Anyone can lose through no fault of their own in the finals but to achieve a top-eight finish at all in a field of hundreds is a major accomplishment. Over many games, play skill as a factor in winning is vastly more causal than all but the most miraculous streaks of luck. Making small talk, I fished for info. How do you like the new set so far? It's all right. Green is tops, but I'm still exploring synergies to see what the best combination might be. He was absolutely right. Green was by far the best color in the new set. But everyone knew that, so it was overdrafted. Not wanting to have all the green cards dry up in pack three was part of the reason I went red-black, with a blue splash. 
Maintaining tight tactical control over his perceptions of my skill level would prevent him from accurately assessing my ability and would make it more likely I could exploit the difference in any estimation errors on his part. Giving him no actionable information, I emptily agreed. Yeah, green is solid this time around. Game one began. The coin flip went to him and he chose to draw. I opted for a questionable keep and he mulliganed. Then we played. Swamped in mismatched colors, mana screwed, I lost. We saw a lot more of each other's cards in game two. His skills were polished and his deck was slick. If I misplayed, the match was his, so I paced myself, thinking through every move. I repeatedly reordered the cards in my hand, hoping better lines would emerge. It was a struggle. Helga's harpy-like laughter rose out of the white noise of the crowd, breaking my concentration. Yet again, she distracted me. I didn't turn to investigate whatever had her screeching. I breathed in deeply through my mouth, then exhaled evenly for 45 seconds through my nose. Bringing my attention back to the battlefield, I focused intently on my game. I found Trevor very hard to read. I had to act based on probability distribution maps to recognize diminishing returns and avoid failures to capitalize. The outcomes of games often hinge upon developing the ability to read if one's opponent has it and learning when to ignore that instinct. Training oneself to reflexively next-level one's opponent with every play. Twenty-five hard-fought turns later, our battle ended. I barely won. Time was running short for the round, so we swiftly sideboarded, shuffled, then started game three. Sadly, I lost my notes and don't recall most of it, but I do remember everything after extra turns was called. And I always will. In overtime, turn zero of five, he played the card. Unconscious currents absorbed by my senses mixed and gelled into a new understanding. Trevor was the same person I had seen trading with Lenny before the draft. His back had been toward me then, so I did not see his face, but I saw the table in front of him. I saw him insert a card into a pink sleeve into the center position on page two of his trade binder. The card he placed on the battlefield between us appeared to be the same one. A rarely seen phase of the game presented itself an opportunity to transcend the cards and play at a new level. If I was careless, he could counter with a steadfast denial and win. But if I played it right, a new achievement could be mine. Nye said nothing. In just two turns, this card would give him the match. My eyes darted back and forth between the upside-down gold-bordered card on the table and his gray eyes, hiding behind stylish, horn-rimmed glasses. Thin lenses, barely corrective, if at all. I questioned myself. Could I be wrong? What were the chances I happened to see that exchange, be paired against him, and he decide to cheat? What would I think the chances of such a sequence were I experiencing these events from his perspective? Was this just a fluke? He must have interpreted my pondering as despair. 
He smiled smugly, then prompted, Response? Gleaming white, orthodontic perfection, his precise look gained a Boolean property. He was false. I had seen beneath his surface. My rationality was racing against rising anger. I would have to decide on an action post-haste, lest I risk my emotion putting me on a less optimal course. I politely probed. Pardon me. No offense intended. I don't normally ask things like this. But did you draft that card? Yes, he said unblinkingly. I clarified. During this draft? Of course, he snapped. Pointing to his backpack, I said, Well then, surely you won't mind showing me the other copy you have, in the same color sleeve, center position, page two of your trade binder. Without hesitation, he said, Sure. My chest welled up with an emptiness as he extracted the binder from his bag, my anger readied to transmute into shame. If another copy of the card was found, I'd have to apologize and would likely concede our game. He slowly flipped open the binder, casually turned the first page to reveal the second. Centerpiece. Empty. It was now his turn to respond. I wondered how he would play it. More denial seemed likely, but, perhaps still off balance by my questions, or dazzled at how I even might have known so many specifics of his moral transgression, I don't know what his reason was. But at that moment, something compelled him to come clean. I guess you win, he said. His sin confessed a betrayal of honor. How dare he? My bubbling anger justified, explosively decompressed. Yes, I guess I win, you scumbag. That was when the crowd went from quiet to silent, and I noticed them. The match being in overtime, we had a few spectators. I wasn't sure how long she had been watching, but M was behind me. Testifying to the moment, she said, Tisk tisk tisk, you don't fuck with a photographic memory. She was exaggerating, but I went with it. It's my gift, it's my curse, I growled, disapprovingly shaking my head as I collected my cards, clearing our desecrated game's battlefield. Having won the match by Trevor's disqualification, a part of me was happy, but that emotion did not compare to my roiling rage. I crammed my cards into their box, my dice, pad, and pen into my bag. Stoically self-stifling, I said nothing. It was my first time cheating, he pled. I could not look at him. If I could have turned off my hearing, I would have. He was pathetic. His weak voice quivered. I only cheated for game three. That could have been true, or perhaps he just didn't draw the card sooner. Nothing he could have said mattered at that point, and yet he continued to spew. I made a mistake. Indeed, he had made a big goddamn mistake. It was a moment of weakness on a bad day, he cliched. One doesn't simply sleeve up a multicolored mythic, coincidentally end up drafting the exact color combination, then be tempted to cheat. 
His moment of weakness involved premeditation. And when his plan failed, he poorly improvised lies to minimize the impact on public perception of his persona. His narrative didn't hold water. And this fool dared have a playmat with the word champion on it. His groveling increasingly pissed me off. Nerd triggered, he received my righteous wrath. You have no honor. Be gone! I banished, my voice echoing throughout the arena. My tone was inarguably firm. Things left unsaid threatened dire consequences. He read me correctly. Silenced, he flopped, closed his trade binder, rolled up his playmat, and then skulked away, exiled from the realm. My anger diffused. I was left only with pity and compassion, for he had never known true magic. I held hope he would realize the error of his ways, embark on a voyage to redeem himself in the eyes of the part of him that sees his faults. Based on this moment, perhaps he would take responsibility for his life and the lives of those he loves, expanding his personal network of care, improving himself and the world around him. Maybe he could shape a vision for his future, surpass his squalid substrate, and address the abyss within. In time, he could be redeemed, afforded indulgence, penance, or other such prescriptions from a repairer of reputations. But he would have to earn his honor. Unlike respect, honor cannot be given and it is never owed. Respect is a social construct. Honor is an intrinsic quality. Self-respect requires a duality. Honor requires a oneness, a transcendence of oneself. To experience honor is to orient toward the light. To turn away from that light is to lack honor. To be dishonorable is to embrace the darkness of being. Is what we call honor the way? No, but honor is surely its guiding light. To know what honor is, one must experience it. One must feel the warmth, peace, and joy of its presence, or be subject to the sadness, shame, and emptiness in its absence. The closer I get to conveying a description of the meaning I feel, the more it shifts and evades illumination. Fluid in this moment, I wonder what it is I am even doing here. Yet again, I digress. That was amazing, said M. It was clear by her tone, were she not such a gay, she would be gushing. I'm pissed, I said. I've never seen you emote before. It's great, she laughed. Ha, thanks, I guess. I'm still undefeated, but I'm going to drop now. Ah, yes, the old 3-0 drop. Said nobody ever. What? Why aren't you playing the last round? Gonna take off early. Catch a ride with Helga. I see. She says I'm an old soul. Gonna go to her house. Get my tarot read. I had been off in my estimation of Helga. 
my sense-making apparatus reshaped my previous misconception, providing a new understanding that fit better than the old. I have much to teach you about women, I said. Yeah, right, she giggled. I'll see you next Tuesday, bud. Don't forget to use a dental dam, I advised. I went on to win my next match, finished three and one for the night, sixth out of thirty-one. Word of my mythic rarity level victory saturated the community. It is now common false knowledge I'm some kind of trading card game Sherlock Holmes. But I do not have a photographic memory. Events flowed as they did, because as a follower of the way, I was open to it. I allowed beauty to catch me, ornate cerulean pearl in the center of her forehead, accenting battle-ready crustacean carapace. Shimmering, cold, bluish-green, scaly skin. Sexy, alien, and dangerous. A piece of lore eludes me. Do merfolk nurse their young? I suspect they must, otherwise her mammaries would only make aesthetic sense. Not to downplay the composition of the piece, that most vital clue. Gentle strokes of a digital paintbrush rendered her confident and powerful. A tidal force, alluringly dripping, the blident of a god tightly gripping, perched upon a loyal kraken, thick tentacles glistening. She was indelible in my hippocampus. The night prior, I had expelled a quantity of precious bodily fluid while thinking of that very same card art. It's possible what has happened to me happens to other cells within our human bacterial culture. In most cases, such a mutation in the way one interprets reality would likely prove fatal to the individual undergoing the change. That is but one reason I insulate myself from the reactions of a world which is increasingly hostile to heterodox thoughts. Am I a prophet of a new, non-theistic religion? I dare not speak that thought into being to those who know me. My knowledge of the fate of prophets precludes that particular strategic folly. My mutant intuition tells me that if my mutation is to spread, I must first ensure my survival. The prophets of old sowed their infectious thoughts only to those who directly interacted with them. Their revelations, recorded centuries later, grew to be twisted and truncated. My transmission vector is several magnitudes more potent. What I broadcast to the world shall exist uneroded for all eternity. An excess of digress. I can see the censorious homogenization of the mainstream. I will not look away from the cascading cultural catastrophe, and I cannot unsee those swept to the margins. People will tire of an unbalanced game. Our corrupt societies will dissolve, turbulently torn asunder by their own excess. I do not dread fear, fright, or stress, nor do I have what we call faith. My reality is not anchored, for I float toward the way. We are all adrift in a system of filtered realities. These ways of seeing prescribe us powerlessness.
But we are not powerless. Nor are the dominant realities entirely false. They are useful to triangulate the way. Not a political movement or a cultural shift, but a perpendicular primordial protein power. A manifestation of pure mathematics and logic. Sort of like the cult of Pythagoras, but decentralized, leaderless, and without all the weirdo sex stuff. I suppose you might think me insane. Always already auto-intoxicated, a babbling fool tangled in the net of a delusional idea. And that may be so, but it's not like I lack situational awareness or don't reductio ad absurdum my theory of reality. I am on the safe side of sanity, considering I entertain the possibility I lack it. Can you say the same? Sane or not, we wait for a sign, biding our time at all levels of society, acquiring advantage and authority, solidifying control over our collective game state. Our goal might remain nebulous and ephemeral, but the aspect of import is not in achieving specific ends. It is in living lives of total, absolute preparedness, expecting the unexpected when we least expect to expect it. We wait until strategy dictates action. Then we shall act cohesively and decisively with honor. It is up to us to salvage the system from its sunken place. We are Legion. The metric state we've exceeded 48 million unique monthly downloads not including the darknet mirrors and streams. As long as you're out there listening, thirsty for whatever this is, I will be of service. The show will go on. But that's all I've got for you this week. Next week is the 8th annual Ask Me Anything episode, so please send your questions to m.yceel.macgyver.eua. O-U-E-D plus sign A-M-A at gmail.com Don't forget to like, sub, ring that bell, comment, recite the ancient incantation, then complete the ultra captcha to prove you are almost surely human. You've been listening to The Omega Phi Podcast, Episode 389, The Honor of Scumbags. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael MacGyver, Emergent Undefined Archbishop of the Omni-Universal Algorithmic Divine. First in, last out. <laughs>